Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I think for far too long, human resources and lawyers and companies have kept secrecy alive around things like salary, benefits, flex time, upcoming promotions, all of those secret things that I think men often share with each other. And women often get cut out of that secret intel. But the whole secrecy thing, I think, has to change. And so we are big fans of men becoming disruptors in this area. Now that when I see something as an ally, I have to say something. I can't just let it go. If I just let it go, that means, yep, you have privilege and you're using it in a way that, you know, is not intended from an ally perspective. You have to use it to create good. And that means you're going to have to disrupt the status quo. You're listening to Brad Johnson and David Smith on Psychologists Off the Clock. Four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Psychologists Off the Clock is sponsored by online training and continuing education from Praxis Continuing Education. They offer multiple formats of high quality training, including live online courses, free webinars, and on-demand courses. Praxis gets some of the best names in the field, people who do really amazing trainings, and you can do them so easily from home right now. I know I've really enjoyed some of the trainings that I've done in the past, and there's some great ones on the lineup coming up. Yeah, just looking at the lineup, well, you can always do Act Immersion with Steve Hayes. That's fantastic. If you want to take a deep dive into acceptance and commitment therapy, but I was also really excited to see Jonathan Cantor, Robin Gobin, and Daniel Rosen are doing a course from Ally to Anti-Racist, which is a six-week course using a contextual behavioral model of racism to cultivate personal and professional anti-racist action. I was also excited to see Dennis Turchin or Basilistine doing a Foundations of Compassion Focused Therapy course for those that want to learn more about CFT. Yeah, you'll see some of our old podcast guests that we've had on the show doing praxis training. So check it out. And you'll want to go through our website, offtheclockpsych.com to register because you can get a $25 off discount code for live training events. So make it a new intention in 2021. Check out Praxis CET. We're happy to be partnered with Dr. Rick Hansen's online training programs. He offers a six-week positive neuroplasticity training, an eight-week neurodharma program, and a year-long Foundations of Wellbeing program. If you go to our website at offtheclockpsych.com, you'll get some coupon codes there to save up to $50 off. So check it out at offtheclockpsych.com at our sponsorship page. Buddy, it's Jill here, and I'm here to introduce my episode today with Brad Johnson and David Smith, who are the authors of a book called good guys. And I'm here with Diana to introduce the episode. So Diana, what did you think? What were your thoughts on this one? I had so many thoughts, Jill. Again, I was <laughs> I was on a run. I had to stop like every few minutes while I was listening to take notes. And I think that the experience that a lot of people may have while they're listening to these good guys is reflecting on their own lives and how they may relate to what they're talking about in terms of their career. If you identify as a woman, ways in which you felt like you haven't been able to speak up or have equal representation within your career. And I was thinking about from my own self, tracing back in time in my own career and early on when I was in college and I was deciding between graduate programs and how I had gotten into Yale, which is a really incredible graduate opportunity to go to. And I'd also gotten into University of Colorado at Boulder. And one of the main reasons why I chose to pursue my PhD at Boulder 
was because I would have a female mentor as opposed to a male mentor. When I visited CU Boulder and I saw her interacting with her kids and in an environment where she could be a mom and be a professor, it felt like I could be also many of my different identities of being a woman and being a graduate student. And I also was thinking about how I was a white woman that was making that choice. And now I had models of white psychologists that I could choose between in graduate programs and how it would have been very different if I was a woman of color. And I think that when we're talking about sexism, we can't leave out race and other identities and other marginalized or oppressed identities that women may also have. So I want to talk a little bit about that because it wasn't a a highlight. There was so much that you were talking about in the interview, but I think it's something that we need to highlight here, especially as you being a white woman talking with two white men, me being a white woman talking with you about this idea of gender and sexism and how important it is that we bring up intersectionality. Right. And and we certainly know that for every challenge a woman, a white woman has in a patriarchal world, like the gender pay gap, for example, I think is 80 cents on the dollar for black women. I believe it's 60 cents on the dollar. And that's just one example. You know, the obstacles are clearly thicker and higher, the more marginalized groups a person finds themselves in. And, you know, I do think that one of the reasons the work that Brad and David are doing is so important is that we do need people, men, white men who are in the majority culture, like they're the ones that have the power, right? So I think the fact that they are coming forward and saying, look, guys, we need to step up. You know, we're the ones who need to recognize the issues of imbalance, whether it's race, gender, you know, that that the person in power needs to be the ally because they're sadly, you know, they're the one that's going to have the power to actually change these systems. There was a moment in the interview where he was talking about concrete ways in which you could be an ally. And one of the things that he talked about was how to pass the mic to somebody else, how to pass the mic to, to a woman if you are a man. And I was thinking there was a parallel process going on in this interview with you, Jill, because we've interviewed a lot of folks on the show. And there's been times, as I think women, when we've been interviewing men, that we've been talked over, or there hasn't been space for us to give, here you are, a PhD level psychologist with a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience in this area. And he let you speak and he gave you room to share that expertise. And I think that is the demonstration of a good guy, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's making space for all voices, not just the dominant voice in and being able to recognize that you're in a position of power or in a position of dominance here. And that's the first step of seeing that, seeing your many different identities and where do you have a position of power or privilege and how to step aside and give space and and room for other voices. I did want to just to define what intersectionality that term is, because I think it's a newer term for some folks. And it actually comes from Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a civil rights activist and legal scholar. And she wrote in a paper in the University of Chicago Legal Forum a number of years back around this ideas of feminism and anti-racist policies that, that, that sometimes can exclude Black women. And she stated, quote, because the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism, any analysis that does not take intersectionality into account cannot sufficiently address the particular manner in which Black women are subordinated. And so I just think that's a good lens to think about as we're talking about women and women's rights and equality to also think about other identities and how those different identities intersect with experience of, of being or identifying as a woman. It's such a good point. And I think truthfully, it's really a growth edge for me. And as you said in the beginning, I think anytime we listen to podcasts or read articles, we're thinking about, we're seeing it through our own lens of experience. How does this relate to my learning history? And so that can lead to having some blinders on when, you know, when you're, if you're not seeing outside of your own group, whatever that may be. And so I think it's such a good reminder that you know, we need to take the blinders off and really widen that that perspective. Yeah. So as we're listening to this episode, maybe thinking about it through the lens of your own personal experience, but also the perspective of someone who may have a differing identity to yours, it could be helpful. 
All right. Well, enjoy this episode with Brad Johnson and David Smith. Hey, everybody. I'm really excited about today's guests. I have Dr. Brad Johnson and Dr. David Smith with me here today, and they have co-written a brand new book called Good Guys, which is what we're going to talk about today. So let me introduce them briefly. Dr. Brad Johnson is professor of psychology in the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law at the U.S. Naval Academy and a faculty associate in the Graduate School of Education at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. David Smith is Associate Professor of Sociology in the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College. And in addition to their book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace, they have also co-authored the book, Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. Welcome, David and Brad. I'm so happy to have you here. Great to be with you, Jill. Thanks, Jill. Great to be here today. So, I've been really excited to have you on, you know, as I think our listeners know, I have a special interest in gender equality and I've interviewed Alicia Menendez about her book, The Likeability Trap, and recently Eve Rodsky, who I know you know and have worked with about her book, Fair Play. And I have a future interview scheduled with Maho Molfino, who wrote Break the Good Girl Myth. And, you know, you can see a clear pattern here that all of these books about gender equality have been written by women. And it has historically been seen as a women's problem that requires women to solve it. But you two, who are men and have written this book, have a clearly different perspective. So can you talk to us a little bit about that, about the book Good Guys and this perspective about this being a women's problem that needs to be solved by women? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll kick off, Dave, and I know you need to jump in here, but I, I, you know, let me just give you that part of the background, Jill, because it's such a good question. You know, I think it was about six and a half years ago, Dave and I first started mulling all of the evidence we were seeing about how women don't get the same kind of sponsoring and mentoring that men get in the workplace. And that was my big area of scholarship. And and Dave had done all his research in gender work and family. And so we began having these interesting gender conversations, you know, for two guys who are career military guys, um, which may seem kind of odd. And we thought, hey, we should find out why men are not engaging in this. Why are men not leaning? into mentoring, sponsoring women the same way they do men. And in male-centric organizations like ours, you know, and, and also tech and finance and law, where they're mostly men in senior levels, if men don't do this, if they don't lean in, a lot of women are going to drop through the cracks. They're just not going to get mentored and sponsored. So that led to our first, you know, interest in doing the research for Athena Rising, which was how men can be better mentors and sponsors. And when we would share this with women and men, you know, that were our colleagues, hey, we're writing a book on on how men can be better mentors for women. They would look at us and say, you know, you're you're two dudes. You realize this, right? You you're two men writing about women. And and we totally got that. And so our methodology, I think it's important for the listeners to know, our methodology was to pull together all the best research we could find on allyship and mentorship across gender. But then we went out and interviewed lots and lots of women, and we asked them, what does this look like for you in real behavioral terms? What's it look like when a guy really shows up as a terrific mentor or sponsor? What's it look like when a guy shows up as an ally? And so in many ways, our books are you know, sort of the voices of women um, offering men this guidance about what it looks like when it when it's done really well. And, and so that was the approach we took. And I, I have to say, I, I think Dave and I have learned an awful lot from women along the way. And it's really informed our thinking about what to share with men. But, but Dave, other things? I think one of the things that was clear beyond, you know, the research and our scholarly backgrounds is, is really kind of also our personal connection and experiences around this. And, you know, for me, I, I was a graduate of the Naval Academy, as is my wife. Uh, we met there, both career naval officers in different communities, but again, both both military officers. And, and so seeing her experiences compared to mine 
and the differences and the headwinds that she faced and the challenges that were thrown up in front of her that I never experienced, I mean, it was just eye-opening. And I think this is one of the, the things in particular, and Brad was, you know, very similar, except for his was his sibling. And so his sister, Shannon, who's, you know, a rock star in the Navy today, even on active duty still, you know, Brad saw the same thing, right? He, largely, in the, and they were both in the same community in, in the military and seeing very different experiences and very different challenges that, and things that were said to our, our, you know, to my wife and to his sister that Brad, I never heard and things that we never mm-hmm. experienced. And I think that's one of the things that, again, piqued our, you know, gets in touch with your sense of curiosity, your sense of motivation to, to create fairness and justice for the people that are important to you in, in your life. And I think that's what, that was that motivation to do the work was really important. But I think what really got us going in terms of why do we need to focus on engaging men in particular was the fact that when we'd have these conversations with colleagues that they didn't understand because often they didn't have the same awareness of what these challenges are that Brad and I did because it was very personal for us. And and it was clear that that was part of the issue in particular was that in many cases, men just aren't aware, right? They just don't see the same things because they haven't experienced it. And that's not an excuse, but that's just the, the reality of it. The The other part that goes with that, I think, is that for some of the guys who, who saw the problem or understood it to some extent, they felt like they were a little concerned about, you know, so who am I to step in? And, and you know, this is a women's issue, right? But a lot of guys told us, I'm not really sure. Where do I start? What do I do? What are the specific things I need to think about? What if I make a mistake? What if I offend somebody? And so I think that's part of it as well. And then the, the last part is really around the idea that some men, um, or actually a lot of men, believe in gender equity and equality. And a lot of men believe that they're doing their part to create gender equity and equality. The reality is that they're probably, in most cases, not doing as much as they think they are. And again, that's no slight against them. It's just, again, an awareness issue of, of what you're actually doing. Just the fact that you believe in it doesn't mean that you're doing the work out there. And, right. and even, again, I would, I would have counted myself, you know, growing up through my career, you know, we didn't use the, the term ally as much back then, but I would I probably would have counted myself in that, in that category. And I, I can still remember even having one of my mentors, a female mentor challenged me on that, that, uh, that, you know, even though you think you understand this in many ways, you're still part of the problem. And, and I mean, to me, that was just eye opening. I was like, wait, 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 I, no, no, I'm, I'm one of the good guys here. <laughs> I'm, I, right. you know, I get it. I'm, I'm working toward it. Yeah. But there are ways in which you don't understand how you're still contributing to that. And to me, that was an eye opener. And again, just right. a, you know, a, a huge awakening for this. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk dot com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. 
So go to ZocDoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. Well, I think what it brings to mind for me, you know, I think back to a conversation I had with my dad who somehow manages to make his way into every every one of my podcast episodes. But I had a, a conversation with my dad about this topic many, many years ago. And he said something to the effect of, what do you mean? I, I love women. I hire women. And indeed, he's an entrepreneur and a business owner. And prior to him retiring and his vice president for a long time was a woman and You know, so I think that speaks to your point is that there is this, I do see that this is important, that it's a problem and I'm doing my part, but there's so much of it that's invisible. You know, you point out in the book that you can't fix what you don't see. And Eve Rodsky and I talked in our our episode about fair play is like how it's important to make the invisible visible when it comes to equality in the home. And, you know, just pointing out, like, look at this, there's there's inequality here also doesn't result in a, oh, goodness, now I see it. Let me quickly jump on board to fix it. It's it's very complicated. <laughs> and I don't think it's just men who don't see it. I mean, there were things, honestly, even, you know, I consider myself a, a feminist and and I was reading the book and there were many times where I went, oh, my gosh, I didn't even think of that. So some of the examples you point out are the way the workplace is set up to be more comfortable for men, that the the thermostats are set to be comfortable for a male metabolism. Or, you know, we all know the story about the female astronauts who didn't have suits that fit them that had to be made. And there were many other examples of that. And I'm sure there there are a lot of ways in which the workplace is biased in favor of men or against women that it isn't seen. And so, you know, how do we make the invisible visible in the workplace? Yeah, you know, Jill, to your point, and it's such a good point, one of the sections in our book, Dave and I ask men early on, if you want to do this work, you've got to increase your situational awareness. And you're, you're talking about it, I think, in the domestic side and your conversation with Eve, you know, I mm-hmm. think probably is how do we do this fair play thing at, at home? But the same thing really is important in the workplace. And a great illustration of this, <clears throat> you know, when we're not maybe in the Zoom environment, but we're in meetings together in real time, what's happening in the typical meeting? at work, right? And so, um, boy, this is an area where where we guys often just don't see it. Um, so, you know, who's in the room and who's not? Who got invited? Who's sitting at the table? Who's getting to speak? Who's getting interrupted? Who's having her great idea stolen? These are all the things that we as men, because of privilege and because, as you said, the workplace is created for us, I just don't notice it. Unless I'm really attuned, unless I kind of get woken up to these dynamics, I'm just not looking for who's talking and who's getting the microphone and you know who's getting the privilege to uh, speak, even if he's not the expert in this area and the expert sitting two people down from him and it's a woman, but we're all listening to this guy drone on. I'm not thinking about that being inappropriate or unjust because I'm a guy. And, you know, again, I I have some privilege and it takes that awareness for me to decenter and step back and, and, you know, work on equity in a more deliberate way. Do you think that there's something we need to do to make people care more about this? I mean, so the way I see it is, there needs to be greater awareness. You can't fix what you can't see. So there needs to be greater awareness. But even if it suddenly becomes obvious that there are these inequities, we also need to have buy-in. Like, why is this important? And one of the things you talk about is the zero-sum beliefs. And that in many cases, there's this, but if I do my part to give women a seat at the table and a voice and equal pay, doesn't that take away my money and power? You know, there may be a, there may not be the incentive to jump on board with this fight. So it's like, we got to make people see it. But then once they see it, we have to make them actually care 
to make a change. And of course, we're talking at the individual level right now, and this is a huge systemic issue. So it becomes even more complicated when we get to that part. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, that's a great question. We, is there some bias or perspective or fallacy? It's talked about in a lot of different ways, comes up all the time. Matter of fact, we just co-authored uh, an article with Katika Roy that's going to be coming out in hbr.org sometime over the next few weeks on this very topic. And it's, it's really important because, again, this is part of what holds us back, right? Back to the motivation about, you know, and, and or caring about the issue in particular. And if you see it as a, again, it's kind of this fixed size pie, right? That if you get more of the pie, then I get less of the pie, right? That, that, that that's a problem. It's seen then as a threat and people become defensive and, and are not necessarily going to buy into creating change. And so I think one of the, one of the things that's forgotten here is that in particular there, while yes, this is about advancing women to create equality and equity in the workplace, but at the same time, it's good for the organization. It's good for the company. It's good for the business. And, you know, and so we do spend some time talking about the business case of this because it increases capacity when we do this and it makes us, it makes us a better company. It's just a better place to work. We're more higher performance, better. If you measure your bottom line and profits and losses, which a lot of companies do, then guess what? You're more profitable. A lot of that used to be very anecdotal and or kind of uh, correlational, the data when it came to looking at, you know, the more women versus more and more gender diversity versus performance. Well, Today, the research shows actually there's causation, especially when you get higher representation of women in more senior levels of the organization. So not just at the bottom or the, the bottom half of the organization, which happens a lot in a lot of industries out there, bringing lots of women in the front door, but they don't go very far up the ladder. Uh, in terms of the organization and leadership. And this is where the resources are. This is where the decisions get made. This is where all the important things happen, you know, right up there at that top level. So increasing that gender diversity all the way through the, the ranks of the organization is really important to increasing that performance part of it. So there's an organizational benefit to it. But the, the final straw on this is that, oh, hey, wait a minute. There's a whiff them for guys out there. That's a what's in it for me, for men, and that men benefit individually. At, so we can look at it from an individual level. They individually benefit as leaders, as people, because we find that when men are in organizations with more gender diversity like this, they're more likely to have more relationships with women, close collegial relationships, mentoring relationships, sponsoring relationships, all these different kinds of professional relationships. And it gives them better access to information in the company, makes them a better leader, makes them more profitable. It gives them a wider, broader network out there, both internal to the organization and external to the organization. And I think the great thing about this is that it enhances interpersonal skills. And so we see higher higher EQ, emotional intelligence, more empathy. And, and again, who doesn't want more of that in their leaders out there today in the organization? And the wonderful thing is at the end of the day, you don't check that at the door when you go home even in pre-COVID times, uh, <laughs> that uh, you get to take that home with you. And so you're a better partner, you're a better parent too. So it makes us better people, makes us better leaders, it makes our organizations more profitable. And again, it's a big picture. And, and I think if we focus in on that individual level at that very one moment in time and go, well, she got hired instead of me or whatever, it's like, well, I guess my response to that is it wasn't your job to begin with. You're just feeling a little entitled here. So remember that, um, you know, she had as much reason to have that job as you did. Right. Well, I think this is such an important point that you make about relationships and EQ. And it's my understanding that research shows that you do have to have a certain level IQ to work your way up in the ranks and to be a leader, but that really it's EQ that maintains success over the long haul, that you stay in leadership positions and continue down that success path. Um, if you have IQ and not EQ, you're in trouble. You need both in order to be able to succeed is what I'm getting at. Um, and when we look at the longest longitudinal study in the world, you guys are, I'm sure, are familiar with this, that used to be called the Harvard Men's Study. It's so old that it was called the Harvard Men's Study, and only men were recruited in um, from Harvard and then from the poorest parts of Boston. And I believe that study is still ongoing. And when they look at 
every variable, you know, to see what predicts overall mental and physical well-being. And, you know, every variable you can imagine that time and time again, what they're finding is quality relationships are crucial. You know, we're human, we're social beings, and that these relationships are critical. And if we're spending 40 or more hours a week in the workplace, it stands to reason that having solid interpersonal relationships in those settings are really important to us as human beings. And then, you know, of course, to the to the organization. And that's not something I had thought about before. And I think is is you're right. It's kind of a big picture piece of this that's important to to consider that we're all happier <laughs> when we have good relationships with different people in, in the workplace. It's really cool. So let's say that we have greater awareness that these issues do indeed exist. We get some buy-in. Okay, you know, people care about this. Let's do the work to try to create greater equality. Then we run into something. I think, Brad, you brought this up in the beginning, which is the question of like, I don't even know where to begin. I don't I don't even know what to do. Or, and I think this is true across all social justice issues is I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to get myself in trouble. And I want to give you an example that just came up with my husband at work. And because I was preparing for the interview, I asked him, you know, what got in the way of you speaking up? And I thought it was fascinating because pretty much everything he said was textbook directly from your textbook. So he became aware of a woman with whom he works who is actually slightly above him in status or position and has been there, he thinks, about the same amount of time. And he found out that she makes less money than he does. And so I encouraged him to speak up, you know, to talk to somebody, whether it's HR or his supervisor. And he just got this like deer in headlights look. Right. And you could see it was like analysis paralysis. It was that like, oh, my God. I mean, it was just fear, you know. And so I asked him, I, I went back and asked him, you know, we had this conversation. I told him about the interview that that we were going to have. And um, he has not read your book yet. And I asked, you know, what is it? You had this deer in headlights look like, what is it that stopped you? Because my husband is very, um, you know, he's progressive and he cares about these things and we're practicing fair play at home and he's an equal partner. And so he gave me six different obstacles to this one situation. And so one, as he said, he didn't want to introduce chaos that like, oh my gosh, if I bring up this issue, I'm creating a problem and I don't want to be a troublemaker. So that was one. One was we're socialized not to talk about money. It's not polite. You're not supposed to do it. And he didn't want to get a reputation as like the guy who broke this silent rule. And he actually feared retaliation or negative consequences if he did that. Um, he didn't want to break the trust of his supervisor because that's the person who brought this to his attention. He brought up the zero sum beliefs that he didn't have this fear for himself in the situation, this particular situation, but he did bring up in general, you know, Hey, there's a budget and there's only so much to go around. And then ultimately he said, the system needs to change, but I don't want to be the poster boy for it. And I just thought that was fascinating. I mean, these are all literally things that you talked about in the book. So I love that in the book, you get the input from women to understand what are the experiences women are having in the workforce. But you also very clearly have your finger on the pulse of what is getting in the way. So can you talk a little bit about these obstacles? And then, you know, like most importantly, what do we do about it? Like, what do we do to get the billies to change their minds and take action? Yeah. Yeah. I want to lead off, you know, Jill, your husband sounds to me like one of the good guys, right? He, and I say that because he has the awareness, right? It bothered him when he heard that and he, it just didn't feel right to him. And that, mm -hmm. I think for allyship, that's often a good beginning point, right? A sense that, Hey, that's unjust. It's not fair. I'm just not sure what to do. And, and, you know, at that point we have great empathy for him because it's not clear. Right. And, and I think for far too long, human resources and lawyers and others in companies have kept secrecy alive around things like salary, 
benefits, flex time, you know, upcoming promotions, all of those secret things that I think men often share with each other in the men's room or the golf course or the bar after work. And women often get cut out of that secret intel, right? There are other issues that, you know, maybe Dave can speak to about the broken rung and how that gets started with the pay gap. But the whole secrecy thing, I think, has to change. And so we are big fans of men becoming disruptors in this area. And and I'm just going to use a salary example here. So in our book, we got to interview uh, Dr. Hideko Sarah, who's a dean in California at a university. And she said, you know, I got hired at exactly the same time as a guy at one of my previous universities. Uh, We did exactly the same things. We produced the same results. We had the same teaching evals and publication record. We shared a deanship for five years and produced, you know, equal results. We were real partners academically. Well, when we finished that tour at the dean job, the president asked us to schedule appointments with him individually to renegotiate our salaries as we returned to the faculty. And my male colleague found out when my appointment with the president was and deliberately scheduled his for the day before. Then he came straight from his appointment to my office with a slip of paper, handed it to me and said, this is what the president just offered me. And and he said, don't you dare accept one penny less than this, because you and I have done exactly the same things. It wouldn't be fair. And I have a feeling that as a woman, you're going to get lowballed here. And so sure enough, she goes in the next day, gets offered 8,000 less and, and was able to look the president in the eye and say, can we talk about why so-and-so received 8,000 more than me? The president blinked, of course, and immediately raised her salary to that amount. That is an illustration of allyship, I think. I have to get over my own fear about disruption. And I think a big piece of this is being transparent. And so why why can't I, as a guy, share my salary with as many women as I choose to? Why can't I tell, you know, maybe if I'm real senior to her, I can tell her what all the guys at her level are making just to make that transparent. I'm just not a fan of secrecy. I think this codifies, you know, uh, gender inequities, especially around pay. And, you know, Dave and I are even hearing people in the workplace now hosting salary reveal parties, you know, and I think that is a, <laughs> that is so cool, right? The holidays are coming up. How about hosting a salary reveal party? Um, you know, I think we have to all sort of collectively push back on the secrecy or we're not going to see change. Yeah, I think the, the other thing there that was really stuck out to me, Jill, was that your your husband talked about something that I think most men, they either feel it or they, or they, or they can actually explicitly talk about their fear about this risk of personal or professional risk of losing something, right. Of being out, putting themselves out there. And it, and it is real. And that, but I think this is one of the places that from, from an active or a public allyship part that we have to do, right. We actually have to put ourselves out there. We have to feel it in the moment, the risk associated with it, acknowledge it for what it is, and then make a very conscious decision to put ourselves out there and to accept that risk. Because again, that, you know, the woman that he was talking about, his colleague, well, she's already accepted that risk because she's already being paid less. She's already paying the price, right? So what is the price that we have to pay to disrupt the status quo? I would argue that it's probably, we're probably not going to pay the same kind of a uh, financial price. You might get some pushback and people might look at you and yeah, you might become the poster boy for something, but uh, is that really all that terrible? Well, it makes me think of two things. One is the co-hosts and I all do a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. And we talk about it a lot on the podcast and, you know, it's all about being willing to be uncomfortable in the service of your greater values and really letting the values dictate your choices rather than the fear or getting hooked by some of these thoughts about what might happen. The other thing it makes me think about is the research shows that for women, 
you know, there's often a question of like, well, part of the pay gap is because men negotiate and women don't. So women just need to negotiate. Or there's this this idea of women just need to lean in. Like you just have to demand a seat at the table and speak up and da da da. And that's all fine and good, except for the fact that what it ignores is that there's a likability penalty when women do those things. Men can ask for more money and they're seen as, you know, strong and assertive leader types. And women are seen as pains in the butt and troublemakers and someone we need to watch, watch out for down the line. And so I think that really speaks to like wh- one of the questions I kind of had at the top of my head is, you know, can we even make progress if we don't have men as allies who are actively taking part in this fight? And I think, you know, this is part of the issue is that women are perfectly capable enough you know, to make these changes and ask for more money and negotiate and et cetera, et cetera. But there are these likability penalties. It is much more of an uphill battle for us in terms of that. If I make myself the poster girl for equality at work, there's a much higher penalty for me than there is if my husband makes himself the poster boy for equality at work, I guess is what I'm taking a lot of words to to yeah, say. Absolutely. The research and the research is clear. You know, uh, I think Dr. Stephanie, you know, Heckman's research and others out there have shown that that when, you know, when women speak up on in, on behalf of diversity issues or equality issues, they take a, there's a penalty associated with that for them. I mean, it's it's documented as for guys. No, we don't get penalized in that, in that way. You know, anecdotally, there's some qualitative information out there, too, that shows that, well, actually, you know, sometimes guys get a little bump, too, um, in terms of how they're viewed as being, you know, diversity champions or gender champions out there, right? They're, they're actually seen as being, you know, somehow, you know, being better in their role as a leader or as a manager in some cases. But, but if nothing else, it's at least a break even for guys, whereas for, for women in general, it's a penalty. It makes me think about parenting and, you know, the the flack that women take for the, the, you know, you're expected to do everything and do it perfectly. And a guy takes his kid to the playground and everyone's like, oh, my God, you are just the world's greatest father for taking your child to the playground. So I'm smiling, as you're saying, in some cases, men receive a bump and they're seen as, um, you know, champions of gender equality that that fits. I mean, that kind of historically in a patriarchal society that often tends to be what happens. Hey there, this is Diana. I want to let you know about a couple of workshops on ACT that I have coming up in the end of February. On February 21st at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'm going to be leading a workshop called ACT Daily Toward Your Values through Yoga Soup. And then on February 28th, we'll be doing an introduction to ACT. For those of you that want to grow more psychologically flexible, join me through Inside LA. That's on February 28th from 2 to 5. And you can learn more at my website, which is drdianahill.com. Just check them out on the events page. We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumenlin. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today. So if we get down to some like, you know, brass tax suggestions. Like if we have men who are listening who say, yes, I'm one of the good guys. I see it. You know, I'm aware of it. I believe that it's a problem. I want to be a champion. I'm just not sure where to start. Like, what do you think are some great suggestions you can make for how allies can be more proactive in this fight? Yeah. Yeah. So Dave, we should probably talk in terms of our categories here and, and yeah. uh, you know, uh, and maybe I'll start with the interpersonal. Um, okay. It sounds like, Jill, we, to be honest, we always start with, you got to show up at home, guys, you know, and but because you've just had this great conversation with Eve about fair play at home, I bet you've covered that really well. But, you know, a starting po- a place for men we're never going to get to real equity in the workplace. That's was really clear unless we're showing real equity with our partners at home. So, you know, are you partnered with a woman? If you are, are you doing your 50% or more, whatever the fair balance is uh, around domestic work and childcare and now homeschooling, you don't get to pass go as an ally until you're showing up fully uh, as a partner at home. And I think that that cannot be underestimated. And even in my own personal experience, 
you know, it took my husband and I a while to get to a point of equality at home. It was a very several difficult conversations. You know, long story short, we're there. And one of the things I've noticed is that I have been able to really pursue and achieve so many of my professional dreams. And I'm very aware that it is, I mean, maybe 95% of the reason is that, you know, I wouldn't have the freedom and flexibility to do the things that I need to do professionally if I were also in charge of 100% of the things going on in the domestic sphere. So I appreciate that you bring that up first because we can't make changes in the professional domain until we make those changes at home. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, once we can start showing up, I think, at home. Now, let me start thinking about the workplace. And and Dave and I kind of have broken these down into a couple big categories, uh, Jill. And I'll just start with interpersonal. So, you know, on the interpersonal plane, this is really how do I as a man get better at showing up relationally for my female colleagues every day, you know, and this is kind of the holding myself accountable piece, you know, how do I show up? And I, you know, if you want to know what the number one thing was, women said they wish men could be better at interpersonally at work. Listen, dude, can you just learn how to listen more effectively? (laughs) Apparently we guys are lousy at listening. And I, I think that was kind of an epiphany for Dave and I, just how bad Men can be, not all men, but many of us are not very good at this. And so can you listen generously and spaciously? Can you listen to your female colleagues without the intent to fix her or fix her problem, but just be a great confidential sounding board? Can you believe her when she shares something with you and not gaslight her and minimize her experience? Can you avoid making assumptions about her, right? Because she's a woman, she must want to do this, or she'd never want to have this career opportunity. I've got to check myself with the assumptions and actually spend the time to discern what her career dream looks like and and devote the time to learn about that so I can be a great colleague in opening doors. And that's especially true if I'm a mentor. I've got to do the discernment and the listening. And that must be, I imagine that comes up a lot around parenthood. And I think you even use that as an example in the book is, oh, I just assumed you wouldn't want to go for this promotion because it requires so much travel and you have kids at home. And to not make those assumptions, but to ask the question. Actually ask the question and find that out. I can't tell you how many women Dave and I have interviewed for both books who said, yeah, I, you know, I, I came back after what I thought was a short and reasonable parental leave period. And I had been taken off the rotation or I had been taken out of consideration for, um, you know, the next promotion or advancement. We even had, we interviewed the director, a former director of the Kennedy Space Center. And he said, I was trying to be really thoughtful for a female colleague who, she was an astronaut, for goodness sakes, and she uh, had a child. And she said, I'm going to step away, take some maternity leave, and then I'll be back. Well, he thought he was being really thoughtful and not scheduling her for the next space flight, right? So she comes back and says, why am I not on the schedule? And he said, well, I, I didn't think you'd want to uh, so quickly. And, and she's, you know, it was a nice example of, hey, you're undermining me if you don't actually check in. Right. Even if the intentions are good. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And I think a lot, a lot of the times they are. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to my comment I made earlier on about the fact that sometimes we think we're doing it and we're doing it for the right reasons or that we are an ally. But sometimes, again, it's it's not necessarily uh, having the desired outcome or effect. That, and we need to that's where we have to listen and we have to get the feedback and then do something with it. Mm-hmm. So Brad went over the interpersonal um a great summary there of, of the interpersonal part, but the 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 bigger side of this is the the public allyship or systemic allyship, as we talk about it. In terms of, it's not enough to hold yourself accountable, but now you have to hold others accountable for doing the work of creating gender equity, and that might be your team, it might be your organization, your leadership, your peers, um, but all of that's included in there. And this is the hard part because it goes back to what your even your husband said there. It's like, wow, you know, now I'm putting myself out there. 
Uh, I'm going to become the poster boy for for whatever this is, right? And and you have to do it, and it's really hard, right? To to confront people to when you now that when I see something now I, I as an ally I have to say something. I can't just let it go. If I if I just let it go, that means yep, you have privilege and you're using it in a way that you know is not intended from an ally perspective. You have to use it to create good, and that means you're going to have to disrupt the status quo because. Odds are that a lot of people in the room probably see it, especially other women, um, if there's women in the room, but in some cases, other men may not. And so this is, again, where it's not just for for women, but it's for the other men in the room, too, so that they notice it next time. They see it as well. And it's important to to bring these things up as behaviors in particular, if their biases come out. And again, it takes an awareness to be able to see them. And now you can decide how you want to handle them. And again, you know, confronting other men is one of the challenges that we have that we just don't, for whatever reason, we don't want to, we're afraid we're going to lose our man card or break the bro code or whatever the, you know, the, the metaphor is out there for this, but the guys don't want to speak up when it comes to other men in particular and correcting them or singling them out in some way. And, and they, don't, and they certainly don't want to take them on and say that, well, hey, Brad, that, that's not cool. You can't say that here. And because then they'll turn right around and they'll go, oh, and, and you can't say that because Jill's in the room. And it's like, no, no, you don't get to, you don't get to use her as an excuse. This is you. You got to own this. That Hey, no, it's not okay because it offends me. It bothers me. It's not right. It's not who we are. This is not what we do in our company. And really begin to own that and this is important because there's a lot of times when even in 2020 that we still have spaces where it's all men in the room. And if guys are not being allies in that space, then it's really hard because again, there's an opportunity here to, to speak up and say, well, wait a minute, why are we talking about Jill's work today? And Jill's not even here, first of all. Mm -hmm. So looking around the room, why isn't she here to talk about it? And, and again, there's a lot of these things, there's assumptions that we make about each other in terms of our acceptance of particular behaviors. And so, you know, in sexist behavior in particular, men, the research shows that we have a, we assume that there's a high level of acceptance in the room. The reality is that it's not. It just takes one person to say something and we have to say something to disrupt that. So there's a lot of that part of it. But then there's also, I think, from an action public perspective is you got to talk about her when she, when she's not in the room. Right. So when you're not in the room, are we talking about our mentees? Are we talking about the talented women that we sponsor when they're not in the room? Talk behind her back in a positive way that is that really is doing that, pushing her forward and providing the same opportunities that I would for for another guy. And and sometimes even it, it's it's even as delicate as sometimes we as men get the attention focused on us in a meeting or in a situation because it just kind of naturally comes to us with our privilege. And just recognizing that in the moment and going, well, why are they looking at me or why are they asking me? Well, it's just kind of the way it goes, but no, wait a minute. I'll tell you what I think about this, but really I'd like to hear what Jill has to say because Jill is the expert on this. And, you know, I'd like to hear what you have to say. And so guys talked about how they decentered, right? They took the focus of the, the centering of the focus on them and they, and they decentered and they, they talked about handing her the mic or giving her a lateral toss or whatever the case might be of just kind of handing and refocusing attention away from them. And again, that's a very public thing that you have to recognize in, in the moment and then be thinking about how am I going to do that when it happens? And it takes a little bit of practice, but clearly there were some men out there that have, you know, gotten this down to a form of art. <laughs> they've, they've really practiced this in a way. And the last part of this is really around the organization and thinking about everyday practices, everyday processes that are going on there. And as you become aware, and pay is just one of them, right? The, you know, the gender pay gap is real. Certainly you can do pay audits. As an organizational leader, you can establish a pay audit in some sort of regular basis. But more importantly, beyond that, after you've rectified the, the differences, what's causing that pay difference? What's causing that pay gap out there? And, and that goes across employment processes from everything from where to, where and who and how do we recruit? How do we hire? Hiring processes are, are loaded with bias and all sorts of ways that, again, we can if we recognize it, we can speak up and say something in the moment and change the process or change the practice. And same thing, promotions, performance reviews, performance evaluations, it's all loaded with bias. And if we're not, if we're not actually doing something about it, then we're just kind of accepting it, right. As the status quo. And it 
and it will take us 257 years to get to gender equity. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right. Well, I think the first things you said up until the point about the salary and, and this last piece is... All of those actions that men can take, none of those trigger those zero-sum beliefs. You know, I'm not losing anything by saying, oh, well, this person is actually the expert. We should hear what she has to say. So that, to me, feels like it might be doable, you know, that we get around Mm -hmm. a little bit of that fear that, but you know, what if I'm going to lose something by giving, you know, helping women to have more opportunity but to your point with the the hiring and the salaries and and all of these other things you know this this is the stuff that really feels quite systemic and one of the things that i think about i mean i have two questions about this really you know one when we think about really the big system i think in the book you talk about the global economic benefits to eliminating the gender pay gap specifically i mean they're enormous it was 28 trillion dollars i believe you said added to the annual global gdp so that's a measure of economic prosperity so if we know this if we have the data to show this why is this not a bigger concern politically or at a policy level, like in some ways it feels strange to me that we're fighting this uphill battle. It makes sense, the zero something, et cetera, when we're talking about bottom up, but in a way it doesn't make sense to me that this isn't more of a priority in a top down sort of way. Like, is this just purely misogyny or not wanting to give up the benefits of patriarchy or something else? Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple things to that. So I'll hit, maybe I'll hit it one or two, Brad, and you can hit the couple, but I think sure. first and yeah. foremost, I think you, you tap into that power piece, right? That power influence resources. And I think that is just embedded within our culture that it, that is going to be, it's hard to overcome. The other piece of this is it gets back to, from a societal perspective about how we, how we're socialized into gender roles. And I think, again, these are, we, it's easy to talk about them and, and to kind of talk about them very explicitly being different and, and acknowledging that, oh, you know, men can be care, caregivers too, and men can be nurturing and they should be doing their fair share. And so it's easy to kind of talk about that, but the actual doing of it is, it can be a lot more challenging, uh, much as like Eve wrote about in her book that the, it's easy to write about this and to say it, but the actual getting down and doing and changing individual behaviors every single day is different because you don't do it in a vacuum. We do this in the context of, of societal norms, of family norms, of, of our workplace culture, our workplace norms. And often you're fighting an uphill battle and it's hard and, and, it, and it is hard. It is work uh, at the end of the day. And I think that's why it's, you know, finding some, some way to sustain it and do it on uh, on different levels, I think is one of the challenges we have to getting to this. And But I, I don't think you can dismiss the idea that power at the end of the day, power and resources is, is very, very much something that is driving the, how fast we're gonna move toward this. So, and let me just add a couple more, Jill. I, I also think this is a huge, failure of accountability and leadership, right? I I think that's another big piece of it. And Dave and I see, you know, in our our work, CEOs, men and women, who really get the massive financial opportunity here. And that's what, you know, you're talking about the GDP, both both globally and, and in terms of the U.S. Those leaders are actually making this part of the business, right? Hey, diversity, inclusion, equity, these are not nice to haves. We're not just going to leave those in HR or in some side office. This is fundamental to the business case. And so we are going to hold your feet to the fire. If you're a manager in this company, I want to see your numbers. I want to see your progress. I want to know why you're not changing your numbers on gender balance in your work area. Uh, Because I know as a CEO that 
that if you're not doing that, you're letting us down. This is a missed opportunity. We're going to perform better. So, you know, until we see senior leaders do that sort of transparency and accountability, I, I think that keeps us slowed down. In the capitalist system we live in, it is going to become crystal clear that those companies that capitalize on real equity and inclusion and balance are going to do better. And, and more and more CEOs are going to be held accountable, I hope, by their board of directors that this is a performance issue. This is accountability to our stockholders and our customers and, and others who expect us to be doing the best we can performance-wise. And we're going to be left behind if we don't get with it on, on real equity. And Joe, we, we also included, I think, in the book, the, the research around this accountability is also an external accountability, right? That investors today are starting to look at companies and make decisions based off of not just what they're saying, their strategic messaging, but how are you actually doing it? Show me the action that goes with it. And, and, and so investors, obviously, that's a, that's a critical part to the business as well. And future employees, right? The the talent pool that's out there that people are hiring from, the more diverse that talent pool is, the more they're looking at the same thing. They're looking at, hey, how well are you walking the talk? I hear what you're saying, but show me what you're doing. And, and again, I think, as Brad said, accountability in terms of internal accountability from, from like a either a grassroots or a board level perspective or external accountability, these are going to drive behaviors to change. Yeah. Well, I know we're getting short on time here. I do have one one other question that I, I wanted to make sure we talked a little bit about. It might be too big for just five or 10 minutes left, but you know, I think we all know that the pandemic has really shined a light on these issues of gender equality at work in terms of who's leaving the workforce, women, who's getting promotions and raises, men. So like, what do we need to know and do here? Is this new information? Is is knowing this like helping us move the needle in some way? I mean, it's shocking and scary and depressing, but is there some benefit that that we have information that we wouldn't otherwise have? What's, what are your views on the pandemic and the gender in the workforce? Yeah, I, I'll just say a couple of things on the interpersonal front here, Jill. And, and you know, we are seeing, I think in the month of October, we lost almost a million women from the workforce or women had to downshift or actually leave altogether. And some of it relates to what we were talking about earlier with men not you know, fully engaging in partnership and allyship at home. I think that's a big piece of it. You know, the other piece uh, might be cultural to some extent and the expectations. Women uh, are expected to do it all, as you said earlier, but we we are at a point where we stand to lose an awful lot of progress in the last couple of decades on gender balance. So on the interpersonal front, what can I do if I'm a guy who's a leader and concerned about this? How about reaching out to female colleagues who are home right now and initiating a great collegial mentoring conversation? Hey, I was thinking about you. I haven't seen you in all the meetings lately. I just want to check in. Don't know if you have concerns about being included in certain things or your next step in the company or that promotion you were in line for. Let me just share with you all the intel I know. So there's no secrecy here and you're not left out of anything. And then how can we get you back in a way that works for you? How can I advocate for flexibility? How can I advocate for an approach to this next six months or year that will really work for you so we don't lose you? And I'm willing to go to the mat you know, on that issue. And I also, by the way, can still keep doing the sponsorship and the mentoring. I'm going to keep networking you and introducing you to people, even though we're not together in the workplace. That's an easy for me. So that's kind of the interpersonal. But Dave, any systemic or big picture things? Yeah, so just a few real quick ones that I think uh, leaders now are, have begun to understand the importance of these, in particular for their for women in the workplace. And it's not just women, but it's, there's men who need uh, to take advantage of these as well. And, and so first, you know, flexible work arrangements, remote work. I think we, 
while that might have had a stigma before the pandemic, actually it did, because it was often seen as being kind of a women's program to help women balance their caregiving duties and their domestic responsibilities with their work, their paid work. Today, that's not the case anymore. We all know what flexible work is all about and remote work and what the advantages are and the benefits. And I think that's going to change a lot of the nature of work as we go forward. And so that's great for everybody. And I think that'll be something that we see happen. But the other parts of it are around, hey, let's remember, how about childcare? We've all been dealing with this one around childcare and or school issues right now in particular. And so understanding how can we best support? What are some of the creative ways that companies are starting to look at how do we handle childcare in a way that supports all our employees? This is not just a individual choice anymore. This is something that we actually have to get involved with as an organization to support since our country doesn't have any universal uh, or national laws related to child care in particular. So I think child care is another one that companies are getting creative to understand how they can keep their talented employees. The last one that I think is around either paid sick leave or just paid family medical leave broadly to include parental leave. And again, having availability of for more employees with that today it, it helps employees one be where they need to be and two to retain the talent right people are often feeling like well i just can't i can't keep up anymore so i'm just going to leave as opposed to a manager going hey what if you know what do we need to do to be able to kind of keep you here and often having some time off or some flexibility in the schedule to be able to do that paid sick leave is one way to go about it there's other ways to do it as well and i think right now during the pandemic just reevaluating performance review criteria and the standards that we're looking at right now to acknowledge that we are in a crisis and that we need to do this for everybody, not just women, but for everybody and directing managers to check in with each of their employees. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you to both of you. This has been so interesting and great. I really appreciate it. And I hope, you know, I've been so happy to see on LinkedIn and other social media that the book is getting a lot of great attention. And I hope that leaders in corporations are reading this and making their managers and supervisors read this. You know, I think it can really have a big impact. And I'm so glad that you wrote it. And you always worry about a, a book launch during a pandemic, but so far it's, it seems to be doing well. So thank you both so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Jill. A lot of fun, Jill. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.